Welcome back to Talking Stocks. We hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. My name is Joe. I'm here with Todd Campbell, as always. Todd, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I think I'm still, still full. Yeah. <laughs> Not surprising. Um, is, there, is there a rule, Joe, on how many day, consecutive days of leftovers you can have before you're... <laughs> I think I've reached it. I I think the rule. I, yeah, I, I think it's probably like three days in a row. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I if you like sprinkle really another, if you sprinkle another meal in between, you can stretch it out another few days, I think. <laughs> good point. You got to mix it up, you know, exactly, take it slow. Exactly. If our listeners have any opinion on maximum numbers of days that you could get away with turkey sandwiches uh, before you get sick of them, feel free to leave a note in the comments. It's a very, it's a very important debate. That's, that's what we've been focusing on all week. No. It sorry. is. It is. We've had multiple, <laughs> multiple live stream conversations of, the, of this. And, oh, and yes. Everything. And I noticed yeah. today, Joe, you know, today is the hoodie episode. Apparently it is. <laughs> so hopefully all our listeners at home have their hoodies. They can join us in the hoodie episode. Oh, but, yes. Uh, yeah. I had, a, I had a good holiday. I hope you had a nice holiday as well, Joe. Yes, I certainly did. There's, it's, been, it's been a solid two weeks since we recorded last, and there's a lot that's happened. So I want to I wanna dive in first. Um, you've been... Uh, tweeting about a little bit and even posting on Limelight Alpha a little bit about uh, the overbought indicators, which are just like flashing red lights left and right. And so there's, you know, you, you see the markets kind of flying high right now and all the, all the typical high flyers are, are leading the way, but there, there's, a, there's an underlying story to that. So, so why, don't, why don't you explain that for us? Yeah, <laughs> this is a weird one, Joe, because, you know, often, you know, in other times of the year, you can see these sentiment readings get really extended and feel pretty confident. Yeah, we're going to get a pullback and the pullback is going to be pretty severe. <laughs> but you've got this massive cross current now because, you know, the end of the year, this period is usually pretty strong for, for stocks. I mean, you've got rebalancing being done by active managers going into year end where they tend to try and pack their portfolios with uh, stocks maybe they didn't own that they should have owned this year. So for the high flyers, that provides a little bit of support uh, for them. You've got end of year bonuses that tend to flow into stocks at this time of year. You have IRA contributions that can flow into stocks this time of year. You have the normal um, flow that comes in, you know, into 401ks and 403bs, obviously continuously doing it. And then you've got, you know, some weird one-offs with like, for example, the addition of Tesla uh, mid-month in December that is kind of an overhang because people aren't really sure, well, obviously some stocks are going to have to get sold so Tesla can get put in. So there's all these kind of mixed signals. But over time, Joe, what I found is that one of the best indicators for me has been to keep to basically track the percentage of stocks that are running what I call hot. They're running hot. So I define hot as of the institutional quality universe, so our stock is a universe about 1,500, 1,600 stocks. These are all institutional quality names. They're not penny stocks, right? These are high quality names that institutions can buy. What percentage of them are trading 5% or more above the 200-day moving average? And what I found is that when you get really elevated readings, that can signal it's time to rein in your risk, get a little bit more defensive because a correction could be coming. And I want to share my screen and um, show investors what I'm talking about, show our listeners what I'm talking about. If you're on 
the podcast, if you're listening to the podcast, you're not watching it on YouTube, I'll, I'll try to talk you through it the best I can. Um, Joe, you can see the screen now, right? I sure can. Awesome. So again, what, I, what I'm looking at here is the chart of stocks that are more than 5% above and below the 200-day moving average, with the blue line being above and uh, the red line being below, so more than 5% below. And as you can see, we are in, Joe, uncharted territory. Yikes. I mean, we, <laughs> you know, it's crazy. We're, we're over 70, 72% of our universe is now 5% or more above the 200-day moving average. And I mean, if you go back to like, you know, early to the peak in January 2020, we were at about 55%. The peak in, in um, late 2017, early 2018, when we had that big drop off, that was also a little bit over 50%. So, you know, since I started crunching this back in 2014, I mean, this is, this is obviously the, the highest we've ever been, and correspondingly the lowest we've ever been on the number of stocks that are trading 5% or more below. And Joe, that, I think that that's really because not only have we seen ongoing interest in some of those, you know, early movers post COVID that March bottom, you know, the SaaS stocks, technology stocks, those have kind of held up, maybe gone sideways a little bit, but, but they've held up. Now you're starting to see a broadening out of participation and you've got these other areas of the basket. I mean, we saw industrials move up in the ranking a couple months ago. We've seen consumer goods move up in the ranking, services move up in the ranking. Uh, you're even seeing some signs of life in baskets like, you know, energy. Yeah, so since you said it, <laughs> you, I know there were a few energy stocks that might be kind of outliers in this, um, in this overbought universe. So I believe you had three that you had kind of picked out that are pretty high scoring in the research well, that you know, one of the, might be worth a look. Yeah, I, I think probably what's on the mind of everybody is what do you do, Joe, when you get, you know, those kind of cross currents, right? You get 70% right. extended like we are. We have every cent. If you look at AAII, you know, the Institutional Investor Survey, it's, it's, that's telling you that maybe you should be cautious. You've got this telling you should be cautious. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've always said, I tweet about it, and Joe, I'm sure that you remember me saying it, and even in the, in the class that you took, um, you know, you've, you've, it's easier to make plans when the going's good, right? So, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, when this is the time to be coming up with your strategy to, to just rein in a little bit of your risk. I don't believe in margin. I don't use margin. Margin cuts both ways. When stocks sell off, you do not want to be forced to sell because of a margin call. Uh, it happened to me too many times. I just don't do it. Um, I don't do short-term calls because, you know, time decay. And when you get up close to, to in periods like this, you could absolutely um, never recover back to those, those strike prices. So I, don't, I, I, I think that investors are, are, would be well-served and kind of reining back the risk, making sure that they're not overly exposed when it comes to margin, avoid those short-term calls, maybe go through their individual portfolio and start to, to figure out, okay, have any of my catalysts busted on these stocks? You know, should I get rid of any of these stocks? Am I hanging on to them just for the sake of hanging on? You know, kind of raise a little bit of cash that you can deploy to maybe some favorite wish list names if you get them. Now, that being said, to your point, um, energy as a whole still scores. So in our sector ranking, 
it still scores below average. However, we have seen some individual stocks starting to percolate up. Now, I've seen I, this book. I've seen this book before, and I, our, our listeners can be like, "Todd, do not tell me to buy an injury stock. Every time I buy them, I get run over." And yes, this is the right time for it. Oftentimes, you will start to see energy stocks percolate with optimism into the end of the year, and then they just die on a vine, right? Okay, I, I get it, I get it. Nobody owns energy stocks, though. And at some point, maybe, maybe there is an exploitable, uh, exploitable opportunity here. So I wanted to highlight three stocks that are scoring well in the research, that you can sort of use to dip your toes into the sector. And uh, I'm gonna share my screen again. Um, and let's see here. See if this pulls up what I want. And uh, Joe, you can see the charts. Yes. Awesome. So we get the S&P 500 up here right now. You can see how we're, we are indeed moving out above this prior range. Um, and obviously that would be a good thing and bullish. Um, but I do think that there are some risks that you need to be planning for. So I would be doing what I said as far as uh, don't getting off, don't get off a fast moving train while it's moving fast, right, Joe? But at the same time, uh, be prudent and maybe lighten up some of your exposure. So if you're considering some of these energy stocks that nobody owns, um, there are three that have moved up in the ranking that I think you can take a look at. Um, the first is Halliburton. Um, Halliburton is an interesting stock in this group. And what they, what's interesting here, Joe, is that all three of these are still profitable. So as bad as energy has been, right? <clears throat> all three of these are still profitable. So Halliburton, $1.24 in 2019, 61 cents in 2020, 66 cents in 2021. And the hope as an energy investor would be that those estimates are low and will get revised upward because of general tailwinds, economic activity, boosting demand for uh, energy products and supporting prices. We'll find out, right? But one that I think you can, you can take a stab at and give a shot at owning here is Halliburton. And as you can just see here, that reservoir completion and drilling services and products worldwide to upstream oil and gas industry. So basically they're a supplier to the companies that are drilling for oil. Another one that's popped up in our ranking with a score above 90, Core Laboratories. <clears throat> Again, profitable, $1.79 in 2019, falling to 74 cents in 2020, climbing back up to 83 cents in 2021. The hope would be that if you do get some stability in the basket, that some money will get spent on the research and the analysis of these wells and how to maximize them. That's the uh, area that Core Labs participates in. So they're kind of a analysis, how do I get the best uh, return ROI on my particular well? So Core Labs would be another one that I think you can go with. And then Diamondback Energy would be the third of the basket that maybe you could put, you could put into your portfolio. Again, earned 645 in 19 falling to 289 and 20, climbing back up to 392 in 2021. And what's interesting about this one, Joe, is that if you look at it on a technical basis, and I use technicals more as to help me gauge sentiment, to help me quickly see the money flow, uh, positive up days to down days, that type of thing. 
but also to help me with my entry points a little bit. And what you can see here with Diamondback Energy here is you've got some support here at the 40. It's just sitting above its 200-day a little bit. And what I like about that is you can kind of define your exit. If you're wrong and it closes more than 5% below the 200-day moving average, bye-bye gone you know i tried it energy once again failed focusing yep. on other ideas all right um so going going off of that if you wouldn't mind i i just i was looking when you had that core laboratories chart up would you mind bringing that up again because i i noticed something in there that probably people who are who are watching may have also noticed that is a little a little bit peculiar and i i want to kind of i want to i want to poke your brain on this a little bit more. So looking at those at those EPS numbers, right? So for those of you who are listening, 2014, it peaked at 587 per share, and then has since declined to 317, all the way down to $1.51 in 2016, and then kind of kind of bounced around between 2016 and 2020. So what when I see that, for me as an investor, that's a cause for concern seeing eps decline like that so you know it's it's declining this year and in 2021 if it's you know if they're profitable theoretically the eps is going to go up a little bit so like what is from your perspective what's like the theoretical holding period for a stock like this Welcome to the world of investing in basic material stocks, <laughs> energy and basics, commodities. Uh, that's what happens. You know, you get boom and bust periods. So yep. they, they make a lot of money when the economies are strong and, you know, the, the, the commodity they're producing is in short supply and they lose a lot of money when the economy is shrinking or their product is in oversupply and, and it's a boom, these are boom and bust businesses. And, you know, it's kind of like, I think the best way to look at it is as a rental. You know, basic materials, energy, they're rentals. They're not, you're not, I'm not buying Core Labs to own it for the next 50 years. Yeah. Right? I'm buying Core Labs to potentially make some money in a shorter time period. And, you know, there are certain baskets that are cyclicals like that, that I think that that's the best approach as an investor is just to opportunistically say, all right, it might be time for some of these to be getting going and I'll buy them. I think that the same holds true for, you know, gold investors and silver investors, you know, anything that's commodity oriented, uh, you're just going to simply see these boom and bust periods. So you can't, Joe, you can't look at it as if you were looking at, say, um, a technology company or a traditional growth company right uh, because you're right you know you'd be looking at a, a chart of like eastman kodak or something right where <laughs> where you know then the business has been disrupted and it's just it's slowly dying on the vine as these other disruptors are grabbing all the market share and obviously you'd want to be involved in the disruptor not the disrupted t <laughs> you know but um yeah so so that's in my view that's the way to approach these is is as rentals not as um not as i'm going to be a co-owner in this for the next 50 years very good all right so shifting gears a little bit uh speaking of disruptors so there's um there's a stock that has really just been all over the world of like fintwit in the past two months or so 
Palantir. I realized last week we've never talked about it on the show. Um, it's it's a relatively new stock, a recent IPO, so we don't have we don't have enough data on it to provide a, a score yet. But you know, there have been a lot of people out there that have made a ton of money off of this stock, whether it's trading options or just simply buying and holding. So I think it's worth at least touching upon um, yeah, this has been just a, for, for our listeners' benefit. Yeah, it's been a, a crazy popular stock with the Robin Hood crowd, right, Joe? Absolutely. Fun to watch. Yeah, yeah I mean, people are just like all over it. You know, they're waking up at 4 a.m. and <laughs> buying pre-market. I'm gonna oh, yeah. And, you know, crazy kind of activity that you and I would not recommend, right? I mean, <laughs> not recommended. Not, do not do this. Do not trade pre-market. Do not trade post-market. Focus on on good companies with with catalysts that you can believe in. One of the things that's interesting on this stock, or you you t- touched on a couple things. Yes, we don't have a score on it yet, and that's because we need multiple quarters to be able to to for a number of our inputs to our scoring model. Um, so we'll be adding it, you know, at some point in the coming months. But we're not quite there yet. We need a little bit more track record to be able to come up with an accurate score for it. The stock went from like, yeah, I'm looking at it now, twelve bucks to thirty bucks in the span of a month. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> that's a crazy run and and now you're retreating you know you I, you peaked over 30 you're a little bit over 20 now you're 22 dollars joe this thing has a market cap of 31 no 37 37 billion dollars and to put wow. that in perspective to put that in perspective joe uh slack symbol work just got bought by salesforce for 28 billion so, I mean, they're valuing this at more than they're valuing Slack. And what's interesting, I mean, you can argue, well, they're, they're obviously they're different businesses and obviously Palantir is growing year over year. It's not, you know, fast growth. But I mean, you can still, I think, draw some conclusions from the Salesforce buying work valuation to maybe how you would value or how you should be thinking about the valuation of the broader software as a service, software infrastructure, software application, software space. And I think that the way to do that is to say, okay, well, what was Salesforce at the height of demand theoretically for a product? What were they willing to pay to own, uh, to own Slack? And they were willing to pay about 28 times uh, if you annualize their, la- their most recent quarter. 28 times sales. So if you have a company that maybe is trading above that, like Palantir, uh, on a valuation, I think it's like 31 or 32, well, then maybe you would say, yeah, in a best case scenario in acquisition takeout, Salesforce is telling us that they're willing to go up to about 28 times sales. Maybe Palantir is a little bit overvalued. So I think, it, I think that you're probably going to see that across the entire software space, Joe kind of like a lot of people doing that math now and saying, should I really be paying 50 or 60 times sales for, for this company? Yeah, it's a bit, that's a bit much for any company, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big growth investor, but you do have to, you do have to consider you know, how, how much or what your entry, what the ideal entry point is into a growth stock. Absolutely. And, I'm not sure that we're at a point now where you could say, even with a retreat, 
you know, uh, and Palantir, that it would be on my radar. Would I buy it? I mean, it's growing 50% year over year. It's a profitable company. Um, it does rely on the Defense Department a lot for its revenue stream. And there are some executives that are a little bit controversial uh, from the perspective of a new administration coming in. Not sure how that would all play out as far as, you know, you know Peter Thiel's involvement and, you know, how, how you know, would, would, would you know, his company no longer be in the pole position to get maybe some contract? I don't know. I don't know. Um, so I'm just sitting on my hands with it. I'm going to wait and see what our scores end up pumping out on it in a couple months. But um, I think that across that whole basket, you should probably be looking at your holdings and saying, okay, well, it could get a little choppy around here as we try and figure out, you know, how exactly how much people want to pay for that space. And interesting, Joe, technology, we've talked about on the show before, technology slid down the ranking beginning back in, I think it was September. Yep. Right. So industrials exerted and industrial still scores higher. Consumer goods scores higher. Financials now score higher than technology. So we're in this period of, for technology where it's it's winners and losers like winner semiconductors. Right. We be, beat that drum to death. Oh, yeah. Semi, semi, you know, uh, that's still a good basket to be in. But they, we are seeing this now where it's getting to be more stock and industry specific within technology. It's not just any technology stock. Right. Right, you have to you have to pick and choose for sure. So since you brought it up, I, I think this is probably the news of the week is Slack's acquisition. When I was kind of preparing an, an agenda last night, I, I wrote down just in my notes, Slack acquisition rumors. And then right after I wrote it down, I opened up Twitter and there was the big news of the acquisition. And I was like, holy cow, that is a lot of money. So I, I'd love to hear um, what, what you think about that. And also, I haven't been able to find like what the, what the per share valuation is going to be once the deal is closed for Slack. But I think if, I'm not sure if that information is available yet, but that would certainly be really helpful for, for our listeners who are, who are looking at at Slack right now and seeing that it's, it's kind of, it's a little bit flat at the moment, last I checked, and perhaps there's an opportunity there, perhaps there's not. I usually don't trade, once the deal's done, there's maybe, there often, sometimes there'll be some arbitrage opportunity where you can get a few percent in the stock before it closes because you know some it usually doesn't close up to the unless it's an all cash price it, there's usually a little bit gap and this isn't an all cash deal it's cash plus stock so i think you're getting um if my memory serves me correct listeners it's 0.77 shares of crm so salesforce uh plus like 26 bucks or something like that in cash which worked out when i did the math last night for a Twitter poll that I had done. I asked a, for fun, Joe. I don't know if you saw it, but I, I tweeted. I said, "Let's have some fun." How many of you think that the deal will go for more than fifty bucks a share? How many think won't go for fifty bucks a share? And how many think won't happen at all? And sure enough, they were right. The majority of people we crowdsourced that, and they said below fifty bucks. Yep. And from my math, it was about forty-five, forty-six bucks. But again, it's going to depend a lot on how Salesforce trades from here, because again half that deal or whatever is the, the 0.77 of, of Salesforce shares. Again, symbol there, CRM. So Joe, I would be much more inclined um, maybe just to, to buy Salesforce instead of work. But, but I mean, you could, I suppose for a backdoor play on sale, 
Salesforce, why not buy work? Maybe there's a one or 2% ARB opportunity. You're still gonna end up with the Salesforce shares at the end of the day by buying it. Um, and work in Salesforce is very high scoring in our research. You yep. know, it's, a, it's got a 90 score. So, um, you know, not a bad way to think about it. Yeah, and at, at the time of, that we're recording this, 11.30 a.m., Salesforce is down almost 7%. So, you know, we, we've talked about that before on, on the show where uh, stocks sometimes either they decline because the whole market is declining or they, they decline just based off of, you know, speculative news that really is not all that substantive. And I think that's, this is probably a pretty solid example of that right now. And, you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna change CRM's score. If anything, it might raise it a little bit because now the price is a little bit more attractive. So yeah, personally, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at CRM right now. I have the, I have the ticker symbol up in Active Trader Pro and I'm looking at it and thinking, hmm. You know, this CRM is one of those stocks that I feel like if you're a growth investor, it should, it's, it's kind of got to be in there, you know? Oh yeah. Okay. I, I own Apple, you know, I own Netflix. So, and I think CRM from the software space is like kind of one of those names. Um, I think you've got a gap now to fill. Usually gaps are filled because you open down pretty substantially from where you closed yesterday. Usually those gaps fill, although we have no idea when. Um, but I will say this, Joe, and this is the way I, you know, I manage my own personal account. I mean, everybody's got their own, you know, sort of magic formula or way that they approach the world, but this is what I do. I find great companies that score high in the research and I buy them on down days, <laughs> you know, and then I, you know, and if I want to trim them, I trim them on updates. I mean, I, yep. you, know, you know, that's how you're pro, that's how you stay proactive, right? That's how you, 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 you manage your entry prices, you know, uh, in periods like this. So. Yeah, I mean, maybe you do it in tranches because again, there is some headline data with the, the news on the slide. So you say, okay, well, if I normally want to have a 3% position in the stock, maybe I take 1% today. Uh, if it opens down tomorrow, I take another 1%. If it reverses and closes up after, because sometimes Joe, this is the inside baseball kind of thing, but sometimes what ends up happening, you get a weekday like today, it gets beat up pretty hard, right? Well, you get the afternoon crowd, the people who don't see the quotes until the end of the day right? They got home from work. They punch up the thing. Oh my God, this thing fell. I got to get out of it. So the next morning they've got an order in to sell. As soon as the market opens, it drives it down a little further. Then the institutions come in, they start going boom, 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 bye, 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 bye. So the best case scenario in my view would be finish low, open down, reversal up, close, and then put the third tranche on and, you know, sit on it and let it run. Unlike the energy stocks, this is probably when I would I own it and I would, I'm, I plan on owning it. I have no plans to sell it. I'll just yep. going to own it until I, until it no longer meets my requirements, but it's yeah. in my long, my long. Until your, until your thesis is broken, right? Until my thesis is broken. Yeah. Yeah. CRM is definitely, definitely fits into that long-term growth basket. So one last thing that I wanted to bring up where we're kind of, we're kind of running, running high on time here, but I think there's going to be a lot of news in the coming weeks about this. Uh, they're basically rumors at this point of Airbnb's IPO or potential IPO. And of all the times as a potential investor for Airbnb to go public, this is 
about the most as about as about as tumultuous as it can get so just curious to kind of hear you know what what you've been hearing and you know what your what your perspective is on this potential ipo which would probably be the biggest of the year you got some cross currents you talked to the beginning show cross currents you get cross currents here too right because demand for airbnbs imp impacted obviously by this little thing we have now called covid um, you know, and, and how much do you want to pay up for that business model? But at the same time, red hot IPO market, we just talked about pounds here and how things gone from, you know, 10 or 12 bucks a share to 30. Um, you know, Airbnb is an interesting company. I kind of throw it in that kind of Uber Lyft camp though, where I'm like, I'm not really sure what the competitive advantage is. Can't anybody just rent their place out? I mean, obviously it's the platform, but you have VBRO, you got other places out there that have platforms. I, you know, it's one of those, I don't want to say it's too hard to understand, but it's, it's, it's one of those things where, well, let's put it this way. This is what I'm going to do with Airbnb. If you're able to get allocated by your broker, why? Sure. Take some. That's going to be about 3% of our listeners. Yep. <laughs> the size of the portfolio and the, the, you know, access to, to be involved. So yeah, if I get allocated, I'll take a little. Will I own it beyond day one? I can't tell you that because yeah. if it's not big on day one and I've been allocated, I'm probably going to sell it. I'm probably going to sell it and then I'm going to let it play out. And, you know, typically speaking, Joe, I, you know, until lockup expirations pass, until you get multiple quarters of history on it, um, there's just so many other stocks out there. Um, I, I, I just don't, I don't know if I'd be looking, you'd either have to buy it with, I'm going to buy it in the open market. See, the thing is, it could open up 100% higher. Who knows, right? 50% right. higher than the price. So it's hard to say. I, yeah. I mean, I think that you're probably better off letting things settle out. And then, you know, if it comes down or if it does, the IPO doesn't, doesn't, do well, then maybe you can look to pick it up after a few weeks of trading at a decent price. But don't don't get yourself overly uh, hyped. I got to buy it at any price on the day that it opens. Yeah, and certainly don't make it your largest position by any means. That's, no, no. That could be no, a recipe I mean, for disaster. You know what? Somebody out there is going to do it. And they're oh, gonna yeah. make, you know, and, and could, they, could they make a ton of money? Sure. Is that is it prudent? investment rule <clears throat> investment management for your portfolio no no <laughs> yeah all right well before we wrap up here are there any other any other ideas stocks whatnot that you want to bring up just kind of rapid fire before we before we head out not on an individual basis but i would say that there is a conference this week that <clears throat> people you know who are interested in biotech stocks should be paying attention to american society if you Communitology uh, has an ash conference every December. Uh, it runs for a few days and usually, usually some biotech news comes out at this conference that moves stocks higher. So you might want to pay attention to it. Um, I'm watching CRISPR therapeutics to see how, how their data comes out. Um, I'm, I'm watching a couple others as well. Um, hard to say who's going to end up having good data. I haven't looked at the abstracts yet. Um, and you know, oftentimes when the abstract is great, but you know, it's really what the presentation, how the presentation goes off any updated information that's offered. I would say that for biotech investors, there are three 
main conferences that I used to pay, I still pay attention to. Uh, you've got the JP Morgan conference at the beginning of, of January. That's usually, that's across all of healthcare. There's usually some good nuggets of wisdom there. Um, ASH, which is coming up next week. And then in June, there's the ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology Conference. And usually there's some good um, cancer data points in there that can move some of those places as well. So if you're a biotech investor, pay attention to ASH 2020 and the news that could be coming out of that. All right. Very well. So with that, I think we'll I think we'll leave it there and we will see or hear all of you listeners next week. Have a great week, everybody.